If you would, uh, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, and also be prepared to spend some time in Luke's Gospel. And you also might want to have your Trinity hymnal handy, uh, as you can refer to the Apostles' Creed, which is found on page 845. As we begin now to look at this uh, continuing section of the Apostles' Creed, as it's based on God's Word. And so as we go to God's Word, let's first go to Him in prayer. Please join me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we know that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so, Father, as we come before Your Word, we ask that You, by the powerful working of Your Holy Spirit, would indeed instruct us. Would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to know, hearts to embrace, and hands to work out your truth. Father, may your word that we see uh, summarized and organized here in the Apostles' Creed, may it strengthen us with patience to wait and the endurance to not quit as we are encouraged by your living and active word to run the race that is set before us. And Father, while we are running, may we rest in the confidence that the good work that you have begun in us will be carried on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. Well, this past week I learned of the death of two neighbors. A neighbor next to this church building and a neighbor just a few houses up from our house. Uh, Larry Horton, who owned and operated and indeed eventually lived next door, uh, the uh, golf shop, uh, died in early September, and I sadly just learned that um, earlier this past week. And then uh, yesterday I was at the funeral of an 81-year-old man who died suddenly uh, this past Tuesday morning who I waved to and spoke with dozens and dozens of times this past, uh, since we've lived here in northern Kentucky. Well, after learning about their deaths, I went online and I read their obituaries. And I learned a bit more about them, where they were born, uh, what they did in their life, and, 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 and how and when they died. Now, the part of the Apostles' Creed that will be the focus of our attention today reads somewhat like an obituary, a very brief obituary that highlights the beginning and the end of life. We are here at week number seven in our series, Christian, What Do You Believe? An Exposition of the Apostles' Creed. Again, the word creed comes from the Latin word credo, meaning I believe. And while the Apostles' Creed, like the Nicene Creed, like the Westminster Confession of Faith is subordinate to and under the authority of the Bible, creeds and confessions are vitally important as they serve to help us finite minds that we have to organize and summarize the teachings of Scripture. And while it summarizes the Apostles' teaching, it by no means exhausts it, as we will see in particular today. Remember, I believe, we say that three times in the Apostles' Creed, I believe, I believe, I believe. It doesn't mean that we have faith in faith, but we have faith in the faith. 
the good deposit, as Paul would tell Timothy, the faith that was once delivered for all of the saints as we read in Jude. And we've been hearing week after week that there are benefits to having a corporate confession of faith, in particular the Apostles' Creed is a part of our corporate worship. It promotes personal humility. It reminds us that we are in an ongoing stream of believers from past and then into the future. It's not, the Christian faith did not just arrive with us. Also, the creed serves to commend the faith and to defend the faith, to, to put forth the Christian faith as something worthy to believe and also to defend the faith against attack as it lays out some fundamental principles of the Christian faith. And finally, it serves to promote unity as the I believe, I believe, I believe are said simultaneously. All of our voices are joined together as a chorus. You can see where the Apostles' Creed is in three parts, um, kind of a Trinitarian structure. We are in the second part, the second person of the Trinity. I believe in Jesus Christ. The the, the middle section, the second section, the, the long section, all has to do with Jesus Christ. And it stands between the shorter sections on the Father and the Holy Spirit. Two, two weeks ago, we started off with, I believe in Jesus Christ. And we looked in particular at his name and his title and, and the offices. And we, we saw where the declarations that his name will be Jesus and he is the Christ. Last week, we looked at his only Son, our Lord. Today and next week, we're going to be uh, examining a little bit more closely the person and work of Jesus Christ in both his humiliation and then next week in his exaltation. So today we begin a description of Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, a description of his person and his work. Turn with me right over to the next creed, the Nicene Creed, and you'll see a statement right in the middle of the Nicene Creed that says, who for us and for our salvation. And, and this expression that was put into the Nicene Creed rightly to draw attention to all of these things about Christ being born and suffering and dying, you can also see that in this creed as well. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. You can almost insert who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, etc. Well, this, today and next week, as I mentioned, can be captured under the headings of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. Christ going low, as it were, and Christ being lifted high. Jesus his given name, Jesus of Nazareth, Christ, his title, the promised Messiah, the anointed one. Now, in our shorter catechism, question 23, we read this. What offices does Christ execute as our redeemer? Christ, as our redeemer, executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king. And that's all well and true and good. But notice it goes on to say both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. In our preparing for worship email that I sent out on Friday, we saw Westminster Shorter Catechism 27. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? 
Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So you can summarize the the earthly life, as it were, of Jesus as humiliation and exaltation. It's interesting, at the end of John's Gospel, John writes this, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. And in fact, as we will see, if we spent the time that should be spent on each of these aspects of his humiliation, there would be not enough time in the day, days in the week, months, uh, weeks in the month, months in the year to actually fully exhaust this. But again, they could be captured under his humiliation and his exaltation. Turn with me now to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Remember, Paul has called the church to unity. And interestingly, to do that, or not interestingly, or surprisingly, he points them to Jesus, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, or some translations, or emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul here appeals to the humiliation of Jesus Christ as the right and proper motivation for Christian unity. Well, today we're going to briefly unpack and explore the humiliation of Jesus Christ in three areas, as you can see from the title. His birth, his suffering, and his death. His birth, his suffering, and his death. First, his birth. His conception and birth who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Here the Apostles' Creed is declaring how Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God was made human. He did not empty himself of his divinity, his deity. He rather added humanity. And it's mysterious to be sure, but that's what the Scriptures teach. It was an ordinary birth, as we will see, but an out of the ordinary, an extraordinary, in the literal sense, conception. And so here, talking about his conception and his birth, the Apostles' Creed is seeking to unite, to help us understand that in Christ is united in one person, both a human and a divine nature. The one person who is both fully God and fully man. So first, let's... Spend a moment on this first line, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It is an out of the ordinary conception. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Here the emphasis is on divine. In Matthew chapter 1, this announcement was made to Joseph. We read in verses 20 and 21, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the angel announces to Joseph, engaged to be married to Mary, he announces that the Holy Spirit will come upon her. And the angel also announces to Mary, we read in Luke 1 verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Back in 1994, my father uh, died at age 68 and I was in the Navy in Virginia and I came back home and had the opportunity to speak at his funeral and it was at his funeral that I believe uh, the Lord got my attention and said through his word to spend my life uh, sharing and proclaiming his word. Well, a few days after my father's death, um, there was a, 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 a column in the paper by a local columnist and my dad who was a family physician who had delivered somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 babies, um, the author of this column said, um, this is how my father announced the pregnancy test results. Hail Mary, that which is in thee is not of the Holy Spirit, but of man. That was an ordinary conception. This is an extraordinary conception. It is by the Holy Spirit. But this out of the ordinary conception is followed, we read, and born of the Virgin Mary. It's an ordinary birth. Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 go in detail on how the birth of Jesus of Nazareth took place. But we also see in Matthew 1, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, quoting Isaiah 7 14. Now, we don't have the time where it's not important at the moment to, to, to uh, support the, the virgin birth. It's really the virgin conception uh, in, in a more specific term. But the, the virgin birth does a few things. It's a prophetic pointer to the Messiah, as we see from Isaiah 7. It's, it, it's showing how uh, the taking on of human nature allowed the eternal Son of God to be both fully God and fully man in one person. He's born. He's born. He's born human. He's born with a mission. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, of course, is the first proclamation of the gospel. In Genesis 3.15, we read this about the seed of the woman. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's enmity between the the, the Satan and the seed of the woman, and that will come to fruition when there is this battle where the heel of Jesus will be bruised as he crushes the head of Satan through his death. We heard earlier in our New Testament reading from Hebrews 2, he himself partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death, he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who were subject to fear of slavery, of death. This past Friday evening, some of us were at Fairhaven Rescue Mission, and I had the 
the opportunity to speak from Psalm 23 that we looked at this summer. And it was interesting to, to share with the men there that we're always living in the shadow of death. But of course, the shepherd is, is with us in that shadow of death. But, but from the time we're born, we're living under the shadow of death. And yesterday, I was at the funeral talking with some neighbors afterwards, and, and I expressed my grief and sadness. And, and this gentleman, the, ne- the neighbor right across the street said, well, yeah, but you know, death, it's just a part of life. And I went, I wanted to say, no, it's not a part of life. Yes, it's part of the fallen life, but it's not the way. And I wanted to share with him, and I pray that in the coming days I will have the opportunity to share with him about Jesus who destroys death through his death. So my neighbor wasn't born to die, but Jesus really was born to die. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to die in the place of and on behalf of his people. Now before we move on, I think it's time to to say an important word about Mary. Mary, she's named in the Apostles' Creed. Now there's Mariology, the study of Mary, and there's Mariolatry, the worship of Mary. And to be sure, the Roman Catholic Church goes way beyond and gets into this Mary worship. But as a result, sometimes Protestants don't give Mary her due. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. You see beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And then skip with me down to verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? He's just announced that she's going to give birth. How will this be since I am a virgin? Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born, he will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, she goes on to talk about Elizabeth. He goes on to talk about Elizabeth. And then in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, Mary has just received this incredible announcement, this incredible word. And look at her response. Verse 38, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now think with me about Mary. Virgin Mary, never known a man. She is going to have a baby. She's going to show that she is pregnant sooner rather than later. What is Joseph going to think? Well, we see Joseph gets put in the right direction. What are other people going to think? It's a scandal. But Mary fears God more than she fears man. Mary loves the Lord, the God of Israel, more than then she loves herself and her own plans. I mean, this was, from Mary's standpoint, an unplanned pregnancy. 
And yet, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, have your way with me, Lord. So, how about you before we move on? Here's Mary in the Apostles' Creed. How about you? How do you respond to the written word of God? The written word of God that may go up against your plans. Go up against your dreams. Your ideas of your life. Do you submit to the word of the Lord? Do you say, in other words, I'm I'm your servant, Lord. Do with me as you will. Mary was the servant of the Lord. Notice now how the creed moves directly from his birth to his suffering, from the womb, as it were, to the tomb. And born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Wow, straight from birth to suffering. Why? Well, if you think about it, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are rightly called passion narratives with long introductions. Passion meaning suffering. The last week of Jesus' earthly life occupies nine out of the 28 chapters in Matthew, six out of the 16 chapters in Mark, six out of the 24 chapters in Luke, and nine out of the 21 chapters in John. In other words, of the 89 chapters of the gospel, the last week of Jesus' life is a third of all the material. Passion narratives, indeed, with long introductions. Now, suffering, it's not a surprise. It's expected. Remember when we studied Mark, we went through Mark. Jesus said three times he was going to suffer. Listen to this word from Mark 8, 31. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. The next chapter, chapter 9, verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. In chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. So that's Jesus looking ahead to the cross. It's not a surprise. It's expected. It's got to happen. But then after the cross, in Luke 24, on the road with disciples in verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And later in that same chapter, when he's with his disciples, in verse 46, thus it is written that Christ should suffer. Suffer. He suffered. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor in that time and location. It locates the suffering and death of Jesus at a certain time and a certain place in history. If you look at the gospel accounts of all the interactions with Pilate and, and the trial and Herod and and the high priest and Caiaphas and Annas, what you will see highlighted 
with Pilate is a false accusation and an unjust condemnation. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, and the creed goes on, was crucified. Was crucified. Of course, it was the means by which the Roman Empire put criminals and political threats to their rule to death, slowly, agonizingly, publicly, a form of torture, crucifixion. Now before we move on, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. Just as we spend a moment thinking about Mary, I want us to also spend a moment thinking about Pilate. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Here we are going to see the charade, this judicial charade that highlights Jesus' blameless life. Jesus not only didn't break Roman law, he did not, of course, break God's law in thought, word, and deed. Look with me at Luke 24 verse 4. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Jump over with me to verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priest and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And then look with me down to verse 22. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. With Pilate's interaction, you see the innocent suffering in the place of the guilty as you see the exchange later with Jesus and the prisoner Barabbas being exchanged. Interestingly, the two charges on which Jesus is convicted before Pilate are treason and blasphemy. The very crimes of which the entire human race is guilty, not before the court of Pilate, but before the court of heaven. If we were to read more in Luke 23, what we will see is Pilate feared man more than he feared the truth, more than he respected and believed in the power of the truth. He knows Jesus is innocent, is not guilty, and yet he gives the green light to execution because he wants to keep people happy. Happy. Think with me at Mary. Her fear of God was greater than her fear of man, and look with me at Pilate, his fear of man is greater than his fear of God, fear of the truth. So how about you? You and the fear of man. You and the fear of God. Do you spend a lot of your energy trying to keep people happy? Or are you spending your energy and your efforts and your time to obey to love, to serve the Lord. We're going to come back to Pilate and Mary in a moment, but we need to move on. So the creed continues past the crucifixion to his death. We read that 
He died. He died. I'm very thankful for our confessional standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the shorter, the larger catechism, the shorter catechism. I'm thankful for the children's catechism, the first catechism. My friends, if, if all of us, if, if, if everyone could, could know the children's catechism, what a blessing it would be. Because listen to this. He died. Well, question 52 of the children's catechism. What kind of life did Christ live on earth? He lived a life of obedience, service, and suffering. And then the next question, what kind of death did Jesus die? Now, children, those of you that have memorized it, what kind of death did Jesus die? Are you ready? The painful and shameful death of the cross. The painful and shameful death of the cross. He not only died, but he was buried. He was buried. Paul writes that he was given this of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15, that he, he, he died and he was buried. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, he was buried. Burial, here it's really the entombment. It, it signifies the reality of death. The grave was a cave. The body was laid to rest, as you know from the gospel accounts. And the burial sets the stage for his bodily resurrection from the grave. Because you see, unlike Wesley at the hands of Miracle Max, Jesus was really dead. That's why the scriptures emphasize his death. But look, after he was buried, he descended into hell. He descended into hell. The creed concludes the downward descent of Christ from glory to the grave with one final much debated phrase. And there is a historical debate that's been going on for centuries. What does this mean? Prior to 650 AD, there was only one version of the Apostles' Creed that had this. Since then, there were, were many. John Calvin uh, believes this expression to be a summary of the two clauses about death that precede them. It has to do with the humanity of Jesus in his representation of us in the death we experience. Now, some have, it has to do with the words that translated um, hell. Um, the Old Testament place of the departed was Sheol, the New Testament Hades, but that translated hell. But then there's also a Greek word Gehenna, which is a place of punishment. Here it's, it's Hades. And what is going on here, I believe, and I spent quite a bit of time uh, studying this, was what is death? Death is the separation of the body and the soul. The body goes into the ground and the, the soul, as we know for believers, goes into the immediate presence of the Lord. So again, hell here is, is Hades and it's not a place of punishment. That would be Gehenna, but it belongs in this progression of the creed and the representative work of Christ in which we find our salvation. It is as low as you can go. One writer, I think, expressed it well that we think of descending to hell as down because it's lower in dignity and worth than life is here on earth. Christ's descent is to be understood as a full expression of his death. I don't believe, according to my study and the biblical 
um, references. I don't believe it's Jesus suffering in hell because the wrath of God, the separation from God was taking place on the cross. And in particular, on the cross, he tells the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. But I think a great explanation for what descended into hell means comes from our larger catechism, question 50. Wherein consists Christ's humiliation after his death? Isn't that a good question? He's died. Does his humiliation continue after death? And here's the answer. Christ's humiliation after death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which has been otherwise expressed in these words. He descended into hell. So if there's somebody new that's sitting beside you on the Lord's day during worship and and we're confessing together the Apostles' Creed and they say, what on earth does he descended into hell mean? You just tell them that that just shows how far, how low to the extent that Jesus suffered in our place and on our behalf. And notice the punctuation. I don't mean to make a big deal about it, but just notice. Throughout that section, there's commas, 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 semicolon. He descended into hell, period. We'll see next week a big change. But until then, he descended into hell, period. The end. Now, this section of the Apostles' Creed reads like a brief obituary. It begins with his birth and it ends with his death. And there's not much, if anything, mentioned of his life. Why? Because Jesus really was born to die. It's why the Lord's Supper is about his death. It's that important. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Well, let's wrap up. The author of the Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias Ursinus, lists seven ways that Christ suffered, and I want us to hear these together. Christ gave up the joys of heaven. Christ experienced the infirmities of our nature. Christ knew deprivation and poverty. Christ endured insults, treacheries, slanders, blasphemies, rejection, and contempt. Christ faced temptations from the devil. Christ died a shameful and painful death. And Christ experienced the bitter anguish of soul as one accursed of God and forsaken by his heavenly Father. The suffering and death of Jesus in our place and on our behalf. The history is this, Christ died. The theology is this, for our sins. And both are statements of fact. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. In Peter, 1 Peter 3, we read this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Christ died is history. 
Christ died for our sins is theology, and it is gloriously true. Finally, as you've seen, the the Apostles' Creed highlights two people. It highlights Jesus Christ, right? But two people, Mary and Pilate. And in that, we, we know of two responses from two servants of the Lord and to the Word of God. Mary is a servant of the Lord. She expresses and displays faith and trust and love. Mary gets it when people are big, God is small. But yet, when God is big, when God is seen for who he rightfully is, people are small. And she recognizes her smallness in view of God's bigness. But not so with Pilate. Pilate is also a servant of the Lord, right? He's doing the Lord's bidding It was the will of God to crush him, right? It was through the preordained plan of God to use Pilate and others to bring about the death of Jesus. He's also a servant of the Lord, but there is no faith, no trust, no love. For Pilate, really, when people are big, God is small. And Pilate's wife was big, He looked in the mirror and he was big. And the crowd of the people demanding the death of Jesus were big. But my friends, at the heart of this section of the Apostles' Creed is the fact that our big God became small. Emptied himself, made himself nothing, added frail and weak humanity so that he could taste and experience death in our place and on our behalf. In the church quote of the week that went out on Friday, a distinction was made between reciting the creed and residing in the creed. Are you able to reside By personal faith in the creed? Are you expressing personal faith in the one who is at the center of the Apostles' Creed? Are you residing in the truth about Jesus? Are you residing in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life? The one who is full of grace and truth? Are you trusting in the word that became flesh and dwelt among us? Are you residing in faith in the one who even though he knew no sin, he became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. The second verse of the hymn, Man of Sorrows, What a Name, says it well. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, through your work in us, we can acknowledge that we were so wicked and sinful that Jesus 
had to die for us. And yet, Father, you have opened our eyes to see, our our minds to know that we are also so loved and treasured that Jesus was glad to die for us. Indeed, those who believe and trust in Jesus are the joy set before him as he headed to the cross, as he made that descent. Father, Jesus took your curse so that we could receive your blessing. What an amazing exchange as Jesus is both our substitute and the sacrifice. May your word that we have just heard take up residence in our life and change us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior and our risen and reigning Lord for your glory and for the good of your people now and forever. Amen.